So I'm confused about ranch dressing and casseroles. Maybe you are too. It's not that I don't know what they are or what they're for. It's just I'm not quite clear about whether it's okay to like them or not. You know what I mean? Take ranch salad dressing. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child, I reasoned as a child, and I thought ranch dressing and Frito pie were delicious. But when I became an adult, or somewhere along the way at least, I put an end to childish ways and started ordering balsamic vinaigrette, <laughs> which is pretty worthless as a pizza crust dip, by the way. But I've begun to notice that the foodies around me never seemed to order ranch dressing, and they kind of cleared their throats and sat up straighter when, they, when I did. Some for, same for casseroles, unless they're cassoulet, or I later learned that some sophisticated Memphians had actually been eating something called fish pudding in a church basement for decades, but come on, a casserole by any other name. Well, it might sound like I'm pretty clear on the acceptability of liking these foods, but matters of taste are complicated, and they never seem to stay put, do they? You know good and well that when something's been adequately despised by the tastemakers for long enough, it's only a matter of time before one of them will be self-assured enough to break ranks. She'll show that the world that for all her refinement, she's just as comfortable with street food and ordinary people and will drag a French fry through a dollop of ranch if that's what it takes to prove it. Suddenly she's on the cutting edge again, a tastemaker. I'm guessing that the fickleness of what passes for good taste is one reason we don't assign much spiritual value to things we merely like. Whether the Facebook variety likes or old-fashioned analog ones. We concern ourselves mostly with the higher affections like love when we're in church. But I wonder if something's lost when we downplay the power of what we simply like and by extension the experience of being liked in our Christian lives. In fact, Love can become so spiritualized and we can become so insistent upon that idea that whatever love is, it's not just a feeling, that Christian love can become detached from the realm of, all, of the emotions in which all our other relationships actually live and move and have their being. Show me a relationship in which loving has nothing to do with liking and I'll show you a couple of strangers who just happen to live in close proximity to each other. Maybe the things we like are actually the essential stuff of meaningful interactions with other people and with the world around us. Maybe they matter. And maybe they matter at least in part. Because as much as every single human being needs to be loved, it may be impossible to know that we're loved if we can't believe we're liked. You shall no more be termed forsaken, said Isaiah to the people. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isaiah says, Children of Israel, it's not that God loves you with the perfect, divine, otherworldly love. God somehow delights in you. You make God rejoice. God is like half of a giddy, newlywed couple. God actually likes you. 
Yes, these are all analogies that Isaiah took from ordinary human living to describe what had been revealed to him about God's relationship to the Hebrew people. But these are the ones he used. Delight, rejoicing, being liked. This wouldn't have been trivial stuff back in this day. Not for Israel. You see, when this section of Isaiah was probably written, the Hebrews had finally stumbled back home from that exile off in Babylon. I'm sure they were happy to be free and back in their homeland. But the prevailing worldview of their day was that if your life is full of failure and chaos and pain, that's probably on you. People mostly get what they deserve in this universe. If you lose your so-called promised land a few generations after you finally arrived there, it's because you've been unfaithful or stiff-necked or sinful. It's because God's annoyed. I say that was the prevailing view, but that's not the same thing as saying it's the only view in the Hebrew Scriptures. Yes, there are plenty of moments when Israel is said to be punished for not holding up their end of this covenant, but there are also so many tears in what can seem like an Old Testament system of karma. The book of Job, I'm sure, is the deepest tear. Forty-two chapters of poetry insisting that in the end... No one but the one who laid the foundation of the earth knows why human beings suffer. Job was honorable and innocent, we're told, and still he suffered like few have. There are plenty of ruptures in that view that good things come to the good and bad things to the bad. But as Israel limped home from exile, they must have done so as a very chastened, heartbroken, downtrodden people. The freedom to return to this land that had probably grown foreign to them over the decades and figure out how to scrape an existence there probably didn't feel much like freedom many days. Some days it probably didn't feel like they were exactly the apple of God's eye. A sty is more like it. Such are the people to whom Isaiah says not, well, I hope you've learned your lesson now, but rather God delights in you, friends. You. You just as you are. Just the sight of you makes the heart of God glad. And there, do you recognize it? That redeeming power of simply being liked? In recent years, I've been helped by the writing of a theologian named James Allison. He's an English Catholic priest with big ears and an endearing smile. He's also an an important interpreter of the French thinker René Girard. In particular, Girard's study of the phenomenon of scapegoating in all human cultures. James Allison is not only an English Catholic priest, but a fairly traditional and conservative one by his own description. He also happens to be gay. Some years ago, he found himself, even as a vowed celibate, as the object of some pretty vicious hatred within his church. He didn't say what sins he thought the others might have been scapegoating him for but he was spiritually very much at sea, wondering whether his vocation was valid and whether he even had a place in this Christian tradition he loved. At the height of his distress, he went on a guided Ignatian retreat in Chile. One afternoon, he needed a break and took a walk to a park where he knew the gay men of Santiago were known to meet up. He sat and watched them come and go for a while. Soon, his conscience flared up and his shame And he thought this probably wasn't the most helpful way to spend an afternoon on spiritual retreat. So he returned to the monastery, 
and prayed for several hours in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, which is what many a traditional Catholic priest would do under the circumstances. He was feeling very shameful and contrite when out of nowhere, he insists, he was overwhelmed with a clear sense that God liked the men he'd seen in the park that day. Not that God possessed a divine, encompassing love that managed to take in even these, but that God delighted in these people, just as they were. These particular guys made God happy. James Allison says that it was this experience of simply being liked that saved his life, at least his life as a Catholic priest, which he remains to this day. Why tell you this? I have no proof anything James Allison experienced that day was true in the least. I, I don't share his piety. Praying before the Blessed Sacrament makes very little sense to my Protestant soul. But I do know about the healing power of being liked. I do know about what gets liberated in me when I can believe I'm simply liked by another and what shuts down in me when I'm afraid that I'm not. Friends, I think this may have been the simple truth that was revealed to the prophet Isaiah as well. Love, especially when it's cast in grand theological terms, can so quickly become a cold concept up in our heads. But Isaiah realized that his broken-down people were not just loved in principle by God. They were delighted in, liked, just as they were by God. Maybe we first need to admit that our likes have a lot to do with who we are. We also, and we also admit that we need not only to be loved in some grand, abstract, eternal way, but to be one of the simple, ordinary things in this world somebody else delights in. And that that somebody might even be God. Because if I could even begin to believe that the one that holds all this miraculous universe in existence may actually kind of like us, well, maybe my name would no longer be forsaken. Maybe your name would no longer be desolate. Maybe we'd awaken a little more fully to this simple fact that if our true identities were known, if we could see ourselves as God actually sees us, we would know that the name by which God calls us is still my delight is in you. Just imagine what healing could get loosed in this world by a people who believed that they were liked like that. 